So good morning, as you've just heard. My name is Scott. I'm on the uh, leadership team here for the church, one of the pastors. And everyone knows that we are Reading Family Church. But this doesn't mean that we're a church for families, but rather we are a family as a church. And within church life and in family life, things often happen that are out of the ordinary. And I want to tell you, we've seen some couples. Uh, this is before the preach, by the way. I'm just going to be doing something before the preach. I didn't say that. But um, we've seen many couples get married over the years. And we rarely, if anything, make anything of that on a Sunday morning. And that's often because most of the time we've been involved in some way, shape or form as a church. This morning, however, we are going to take a moment to celebrate and bless the, bless the wedding of Leon and Geraldine. Somebody thought that was good. <laughs> Two Thursdays ago, they got married at the registry office. They had a small ceremony and then they had a reception that their life group attended. That's right, isn't it? They asked us as elders if we would consider doing a blessing for them and we felt in God that this was the right thing to do. They are part of our church family. And they have taken a huge step by getting married together. So Leon and Geraldine, can we welcome you to the front, please? Just make your way up. And if you're in life group with Leon and Geraldine, or if you know them in some way, could you come up and just stand around them as well, please? That's it, good. It might be just one or two of you, but come on up. That's good. Well done, Tom. And all we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to, I'm going to say a few words and we're going to pray, I'm going to pray a blessing over these guys. So Leon and Geraldine have been married in law. They've made solemn vows and have contracted to live together as husband and wife until death parts them. Now they come before God in the presence of the church to ask for a blessing for their marriage. We rejoice in the love they share and gladly pray for the blessing of God upon them. In marriage, a man and a woman love each other. They promise to be faithful in good times and in bad and to honor one another for all their days. In marriage, a new community has been made and all may celebrate a sign of unity and faithfulness. Marriage is a gift and a calling and God's blessing strengthens us to live according to the promises we have made. And so we pray this blessing over our brother and sister. God, our creator, you make us in your image and bless us with the gift of love. In the longing of our bodies, the passion of love's touch and the strong bonds of affection, your love and blessing are already known. We pray for your blessing to be upon Leon and Geraldine, married in your sight. Lord Jesus Christ, who once blessed a wedding by turning water into wine, we pray that Leon and Geraldine may taste the good wine of a happy and joyful marriage. Holy Spirit, bless them with your gifts of love and joy, of peace, of patience and kindness, that they may be good for one another through the years to come and have strength to go on through times of sorrow and struggle. May your love, bound with theirs, keep them faithful to one another and close to you all the days of their life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 God bless you, my friends. It's great to have you. God bless you. <laughs> it's good to do things differently sometimes, huh? Good to do things differently. I've called this morning's preach, No Balm in Gilead, A Lament 
of the soul. So there's going to be some chat about lamenting this morning. And I'm going to make sense of what all that means as we go through. We're in week four of our Jeremiah series. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how Jeremiah's consistent message has been one of endings and beginnings. And we're looking at a point today where Jeremiah is having, a prophet, having to prophesy, he's receiving a prophecy about the endings of Israel, of Judah. And it's not obvious what or when the new beginnings will be that are going to be kind and nice. All they can see ahead, all he can see ahead is exile. And so we've got this, we've got this ending, but not a clear beginning. Park that just for a moment. So our middle child, Daniel, turned 11 just a few weeks ago. And as part of his celebrations, we went to watch Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. I went with Ben, his younger brother, and two of his other friends. And the boys, the boys, were mesmerized by the superb animation and storyline. After a couple of hours, the film draws to an end with a to-be-continued caption. If you've not seen it yet, and I've just let you out of the bag, sorry. Not that sorry. I could audibly hear the dissatisfaction in the boys as they said they can't do that. They can't end it there. We don't know what happens next. Their dissatisfaction, their disappointment was evident as the film ended. As the desire for a detailed, determined ending that would bring all the threads together and make sense of whatever was to come didn't happen. The world that they had sat in for two hours had drawn to a close, but there was no closure. They were left waiting, sad, complaining. Friends, it was a form of lament. You can't leave it there, they said. It's not fair. As I reflect on that moment, I realize that children are really good at lament. They're good at telling their parents or guardians that they are unhappy with the way things are. Lamenting is either a passionate expression of grief or sorrow or a complaint. My children are really good at this. They don't hold back. I wonder, how are we at lamenting? How are we at lamenting? Because you see, in today's passage, we've got five verses and we're going to see that Jeremiah is okay with lament. In fact, this is only one of the lamenting passages in the book of Jeremiah, and he also wrote a book called Lamentations. <laughs> he knows what it is to lament, to come before God with his petition of sorrow, of despair, of complaint, to trust him and to bring it to him. And so we're going to learn something about that this morning. So I'm going to pray, we're going to work through the passage, and then I'm going to lead us to Jesus, and we're going to land in a song. So Father, I want to pray for us now. As we're gathered here this morning in your son's name, as we hear your Bible uh, explained, that we would go away from here with an idea and, and, uh, and even a compulsion maybe to be, to be able to lament, to know what it is to lament and to know that within your kingdom you are fine with this, that it's just an expression of our trust towards you, of our hope in you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, would you move through us this morning? Would you enable us? Would you speak to us? Would we hear your voice? In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Now, before I read the verses, I just want to say, we've got five verses, as I said. We're not, we need to be aware that we're going to hear three different voices. 
we're going to hear the voice of Jeremiah, the voice of Judah, and the voice of God. And it's going to go, Jeremiah, Judah, God, Judah, Jeremiah. Okay? You might find that helpful. So we're going to read the passage together. 8, 18 to 22. Jeremiah 8, 18 to 22. And I'm in the New Living Translation. Jeremiah says, My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. Listen to the weeping of my people. It can be heard all across the land. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem? The people ask. Is a king no longer there? Oh, why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods? Says the Lord. The harvest is finished and the summer is gone, the people cry. Yet we are not saved. I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn and I'm overcome with grief. Is there no medicine, no balm in Gilead? Is there no physicians there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? It's a joyful passage to look into, but we are going to land in Jesus. So we start with Jeremiah's voice. This lament is against the backdrop of the prophecy he's heard and received from God, and he's got to share with the people again. A prophecy that is telling that the people are on a self-destructive path. They don't know the Lord's law anymore. That their teachers have twisted the word of the Lord and written lies. There's death, there's destruction, the taking of God's uh, prosperity, joy, celebration. This is what he's hearing God speak and what he's got to share with the people of God. And this prophecy comes to an end with uh, God's people facing attacks from the north. From a powerful enemy whose stallion's neighing causes the whole land to tremble. God says he's going to send the army like poisonous snakes who will bite them and cause them to die. A judgment that had already fallen upon Israel during Moses' times as they wandered in the desert. So they knew exactly what he was talking about. Would have known what he was talking about. I mean, can you imagine being Jeremiah? He's a man from Judah. And he's got to go to his own people and he's got to carry this to them and tell them this. So it's no surprise when we find him in verse 18, we can totally understand him when he says, My grief is beyond healing. My heart is broken. If you want to read that prophecy, you can read it from the rest of chapter 8 before we've got to this point. In the ESV it says, My joy is gone and grief is upon me. Jeremiah is not apathetic. He doesn't hear this and go, right, okay, I'll just share that. He's not apathetic. He doesn't even express anger towards God or towards his people. Rather, he hears this prophecy and his heart is broken. These are his people. Those who have turned their back on God, who have gone against his laws and his commands. I hope that we can imagine that his joy is going, his heart is breaking, his grief. And it's all for the fact he knows he has to carry this. It's a tough cross 
to bear. Why? Because he knows that all the other prophets are saying, everything's fine. God is with us. We're on the right step. So he knows, therefore, that no one is going to listen to his, what he's got to say. He'll be rejected again. And he will be marginalized as the crazy one. The anti-Judah one. The anti-teachers, anti-priests, anti-prophets one. He's the, what's your problem guy? He's the irritant. He's the negative one. He, but he's the one who is advocating for staying with orthodoxy. Of going with what God has said, not what has been twisted and changed to fit in with other cultures and other ways of thinking. God doesn't want his people to compromise, but to live for him. Not to twist his laws to a place where his people don't even know what his laws are. As he carries this, his pain for the people that he loves, he's one of them. This is his country. These are his people. These are his teachers, his priests, his prophets. These are his brothers and sisters, his aunts, his uncles. And it's massive. So he grieves. He is full of sorrow. And he speaks it out. He's seen that it really matters when we move away from God. His word, his presence. It matters when God's word is twisted. It matters when ideas and activities from other cultures are adopted by God's people. It matters. And it provokes God's anger. Now what we need to appreciate that these five verses we've read are really a poem. A prophetic poem. So they're written prophetically and they're written poetically. It's not written as a report of what happened. Rather it's a record of what Jeremiah is feeling and seeing and hearing in the moment. And what he's seeing is the moment when the people are being attacked. And he can hear the weeping of his people. He can hear their distress. He can hear their pain and their anguish and they're crying out. And it's a question to God. Has the Lord abandoned Jerusalem? Is her king no longer there? People of God are suffering. And now they want their God. You see, they've become laissez-faire, over-familiar with him. Oh God, yeah, yeah, he's there in the temple. He's there in the temple. He's almost like boxed up or in a bottle like a genie. We come to him when we want something. Now they're being attacked. They're indignant. Because where is God? He's not to be found. God responds by asking a question back. Why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods? And in this middle part of the poem, we get the problem. We get the insight into what God is upset about and hence what Jeremiah is ultimately upset about. Carved idols that represent foreign gods. Trinkets that display a hope and a trust somewhere other than our God. Gods of money, gods of sex, gods of uh, fertility, abundance, whatever they may be. And ironically, 
These are the idols that God himself and the other Old Testament writers are, be, are, are, are mocking and have said are powerless. How foolish it would be to, to bow to these things, to follow these things, to have these things. To put our trust in these things. I've been thinking about this for a long time. And always trying to work out what are the idols of our day? The trinkets that represent the gods that we put our comfort and our hope in. And I've come up with a few. Tesco's isn't one of them, it just happens to be the bag. So please forgive me. Okay. What about this? This is B's certificate that she got when she passed her degree. I don't know where mine is. Says a lot about where I put my thing. But this is bees. I wonder if this just uh, helps us see something about maybe the gods of uh, work or education that we can hold in our lives. Just a trinket, a bit of paper. Some may be sitting there going, actually, it's card, Scott. You're right, it's card. <laughs> what about this, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, yes, European champions. <laughs> Thank you very much. This piece of fabric just says West Ham on it. This bit of fabric that represents maybe the gods of sport, gods of entertainment, gods of leisure that we hold so dearly and we hold on to. What would you hold up if you were concerned about that? What else we got in here? Look at this. We've got a passport. The god of identity in our culture. Maybe even for some of you to got to travel and wanting to get to other places, but what is it for you? It's just some paper and card. That's all it is. Slow release vitamin C. <laughs> A bottle of vitamins just to help us think about what about the God of fitness, the God of health? What are we bowing to? What are we worshipping? Got two more. It's a little bit of plastic that we don't even need anymore because most of the time we can use these as well. But this bit of plastic just represents the God of money, security, comfort. We can just stick it all on there. It's all all right. And then finally, you've seen the one. The phone, social media, being able to connect with the world, having everything at our fingertips. We love that, don't we? The God of information, the God of social media in our lives. What is it for you? What would you lay on that table? What would be your trinkets? Tim Keller said in Counterfeit Gods, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give, seek to give you what God can only give. And anything that you seek to give you what God can only give. Just give you a moment just to read the quote again. What would be your picture around the outside there if you had one? Your trinket. These are the things that we turn to when we're tired, upset feeling down they take the place of turning to God in one sense they're harmless and powerless 
but they can become the foreign gods that start to demand a part of us. Anyone heard of Duolingo? Yeah, got the, we got that. There it is. Old duo up there. I had Duolingo for a while. I was learning French. I know, right? Bonjour, bonjour. Mange two, mange two. I thought that that would be far better than just playing games on my phone. So if I had a down moment, if I just got Duolingo out and started to learn a bit of French, that would be amazing. And I was doing quite well. I had a year and a half, um, sorry, being getting ahead of myself. I had a half a year streak going on. But here's the truth. It was starting to control me. The red dot, the reminder, the notification. Haven't been here for a while. I'm sorry, Duo, I'm coming. I was waking up in the morning and thinking, if I just get that done, then I'll keep it happy. It was interrupting my morning devotional time. It was time to get rid of it. It was time to get rid of it. Not change it to another part of the day because the red dot would still be there, the notification I'd know about. I had to get rid of it. Now, Duolingo and learning French isn't bad, but it caught hold of me, and I started serving it rather than it serving me. Have you got a Duolingo in your life? We can know the gods we're following by the places we regularly visit, our temples, if you like. Is it the temple of materialism at Amazon or the shopping mall? The temple of entertainment or football in the stadium or theater or Netflix or your gaming system? Is it our phones, which can be a temple of social media? When we look at pornography or a caught in sexual immorality of any sort, or even when we obsess about sex within marriage, we may well be worshipping at the altar of the God of sex. Friends, I am stirred up by this stuff. It matters. It really matters. And we regularly need to do audits of our lives and have people in our lives who are willing to point out to us if we're going to these places, thinking of these things, if they're taking over our lives in some way, if it's becoming a problem. Why? Because it displeases God. It becomes between us and God. It gets in the middle of it. As a church, we're not those who understand to be God in a box, are we? The, God, the box of Sundays or the box of life group or the odd prayer meeting. We know that's not the case. We know we have access to him all the time. Amen? Amen. We know he's with us at all times. Amen? Amen? We know that he is central in our lives. But it's always to make sure, it's always good to make sure that when we amen something like that, that our lives actually look like that. That when the rubber hits the road, are we turning to God or are we turning to something else? We are in danger of being carried off into exile if we turn our attention away from him. Now, don't get me wrong. Not the exile isn't eternal. Jesus has saved us. We are in his kingdom, but it can be temporal here on this earth. The father does not turn his face away from us, but we can turn our backs on him and walk ourselves into an exile away from him. We can. Then when a crisis comes around, we can be those calling out, God, are you not in Jerusalem? Is the king no longer here? 
when the financial institutions and governing authorities seem to be in disarray, which is happening in our country right now. When the people of God start being attacked for what they believe. When it looks like God has left his people. We do need to ask, where are we worshipping? What other idols, ideas, cultural perspectives are we starting to follow and imbibe? And how long will God be mocked? We need to be clear, God is always there. His lament is, why have they provoked my anger with their carved idols and their worthless foreign gods? Why have they turned away from me? So that's God's lament. Now we come back to the people of God. The people respond to God's question in this sad poem by saying, the harvest is finished and the summer is gone. Yet we are not yet saved. The people of God here are now realizing that there is no quick answer to any of this. There has been an ending for sure, but it's unsatisfactory. They are God's people. Surely he will intervene at some point. Surely the angel of the Lord will come through. Surely there will be a savior who will be raised up to come and bring them back home. Harvest comes, harvest goes. Summer comes, summer goes, but still nothing. God, where are you? The lament of the people of God as they face their to be continued. And this leads Jeremiah again to lament in verse 21 to 22. He says, I hurt with the hurt of my people. I mourn and I'm overcome with grief. Is there no medicine, no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? The medicine or balm of Gilead was famous for its healing properties. When Jeremiah looks on the cries, as he hears these cries in his prophetic vision, he, he's looking out for a way for his people to be healed, to be saved from their rebellion, from their worship of other idols. Is there nothing that can set them free and see them released from the impending doom that's coming their way? Is there nothing? Again, he's not apathetic. He's in pain at what he is seeing prophetically. And just so we're clear, just so we're really crystal clear, all that he saw came to pass when the Babylonians came from the north and carried off the people of God into exile. Everything he saw. If you're someone here with a prophetic gift in today, can I just say to you, I know that it can be painful sometimes when you see something that's not yet happening, but you see it so clearly and vividly. Maybe you even feel the pain and the distress or maybe even the joy of what is to come. And yet it's really hard to convey that message and to be heard. Can I just say to you guys, if you're in the room, we see you. We love you. We are for you. We're not going to understand 
all the time. You're going to have to help us to try and understand. There's going to be tension because it's not here yet, but it is to come, potentially. And unlike Jeremiah, we only prophesy in part now. We don't see the whole thing. So we see you, we hear you, we love you, and we want to hear your voice so that we can, we can live and dwell within the prophetic in our church as well. Just to come back to lament, when we look at this poem, it is a lamenting poem, as I've said. And Jeremiah, the people of God, and God himself, they all lament. There is pain for them all. There is passionate grief for them all. And there is a measure of complaint from them all. And I just want to point out, we're, as, a, as a church, maybe our type of church, we're not great at lamenting. Because we live in the victory of Christ, right? Hallelujah. You know, we kind of went through a journey this morning throughout our worship time, but we land with that. It's perfect. We are in victorious because we have Jesus and he died for us and he rose again, and it's right to have that. But what our type of church can often do is it can often make us feel guilty or ashamed if we feel something different for a moment. If we feel that in a moment we need to go to God and say, Life is hot. Where are you? I need to see your hand at work. You know, sometimes that can almost feel blasphemous, can't it? Because it's like, well, he's victorious. He's got it all. He, he knows the end from the beginning. He, he does. He knows all that stuff. Is the Alpha and the Omega? Yes, he is. But he's our Father in heaven. And he already knows that you're a bit upset. So he's okay with you telling him that. It's not true to say that Jesus and God the Father isn't interested in our lament because he is. And this is, this is a truth. Lament is simply another form of prayer when we bring it to our God. You can think of it like this. Four little bits to do with it. A simple structure. A turning, i.e. We, we turn to God. <laughs> the moment that we lament to him and say, Lord, that's it. We've turned to him. We've got his attention. We've got his ear. Then we bring a complaint. We can ask and then we trust. We turn, we complain, we ask, we trust. The very fact that we turn to God to speak to him expresses our trust. And it's like when my kids turn to me to ask me for something. They come to me, they ask, they complain to me. Why? Because I'm the safest place to bring the complaint to. Or at least I should be. I'm the only person that they can ask for help. And there is only one we can trust in, even if it takes time. Now, we could ask if lamenting is a complaint, can I really bring my complaints to God? Aren't I just moaning? I think that's a really good question to ask, particularly in, in, the, in the British culture where I think we are world famous for moaning. That the weather's either too hot or too cold. Right? We're pretty good at it. I can see some of my brothers and sisters from elsewhere around the world going, yes, right. <laughs> you are pretty famous for that. But we're not, we're not going to laugh too loudly. <laughs> we're pretty good at moaning as Brits. So we can imagine that when you come to give your life to Jesus, that there must be another way. I can't moan now. I can't moan. Jesus died on the cross for me. I can lay down all my idols at the bottom and I can follow after him. I've got nothing to moan about. I've got a victorious king. But the truth is, in the detail of our everyday lives, we live it. There is things to complain about. There are things that go wrong. There is a feeling inside of us that wells up. And believe me, 
If you don't take it to God, you're going to moan anyway. You're just going to chew the ear off the cashier at Sainsbury's or it's just going to fester deep down here somewhere. You're going to moan. Why not take it to the one who will listen? That's lament. And yes, sometimes you will be moaning. Get over yourself. God's okay with that. All lamenting is justifiable before God as it is acknowledging that he is the safe place to go. Your lament may be for your grown children who have walked down cultural paths that have taken them away from God. We may lament that there is no food in the cupboard. We may lament not having a spouse or a child. We may lament the bullying we encounter at work or being passed over for promotion again because your face doesn't fit or worse still because of your race, your age or your sex. But lament. It's okay. And when we do it, we're in good company. David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? That's what the Bible says. Guys, that was still true after he wrote the lamenting Psalms. He didn't stop being a man after God's own heart. Jesus himself lamented in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. If there's any other way, said Jesus. And he shed blood. He sweated blood. He was under so much stress and anxiety. There was a lament in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's any other way. As he's on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's lamenting. Did he stop being the Son of God because he showed sorrow and despair? No. He's still the Son of God. Hallelujah. I don't stop being my kid's dad because they complain and ask me for things. I would have stopped being that ages ago. (laughs) Ironically, it's them expressing their trust in me. How much more our God as his children. Now, just a little point here as well. His silence or the time it takes to uh, to, to answer the prayers that you may send up is not a reflection of the love that he has for you. That was done once and for all at the cross of Christ. That is resurrection. My kids complain sometimes and ask me for things that I am not willing to give them yet. Or maybe ever. Doesn't mean they're not my kids. Just knows I know what they need. As I wrap up now, friends, I want to leave us with the hope of Jesus. Jeremiah asked, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician? Why is there no healing for the wounds of my people? He hadn't yet seen the new beginning that was ushered in through Jesus and the new covenant. covenant. But we have. Jesus' death on the cross was an ending. It was an ending of the exile away from the God of heaven for all those who would believe in him. Yes. It was an ending of religion and trying to keep God happy. It was the ending of the power of death, the devil, and sin. It was the ending of divides and barriers and all isms in the kingdom of heaven. Yes. And friends, as we look at the the resurrection... The resurrection was the beginning of hope, of life eternal, of Holy Spirit-filled living for the people of God 
If you want to, you can join with some of the hallelujahs that are going on around the room. Because this is the good news bit. Right? We've done the bad stuff. Now this is the good stuff. We're not being openly victorious. You can lament. No problem. But this is stuff to recognize. It was the beginning of a royal priesthood of all believers where everyone gets to take their place. The beginning of a whole new humanity. Spirit-filled and Jesus-led. It was the beginning of freedom. Freedom to follow Jesus and leave our old lives behind. Freedom to be God's people and enter into his throne room. Freedom to say no to sin. Whoa. It was the beginning of intimacy with God. Where we get to share both our joys and our satisfaction. Our mundane boredom and our sorrow and our complaints. He now my father and I his true son. (laughs) Friends, lament is good for the soul. As we are real with God, he draws near to us. And as we lament, we give our cares, our worries to him. He receives them. And we may carry that for a while. But then a day is coming. A day is coming. He says he will turn our mourning into dancing. (laughs) We're going to finish with a song. The song points us to the ancient of days, the great triune God who was there before creation, before time, before anything. There is lament in this song, but also deep trust. It lifts our eyes again. As we sing this song, I wonder if you aren't yet following Jesus, then maybe this might be the moment you say, I want to follow this one. I want to follow this one, this Jesus, I want to follow him. I want to give my life to following after him. This one who hears me. This, wasn't, this one who doesn't just call me a moaner, but says it's prayer. <laughs> if you'd like to do that, then uh, you could talk to someone around you. Talk to someone next to you. Maybe come up, find me, find Tope, find Ben. We'll be very happy to pray for you. Maybe do that at the end. Do it during the song. We don't care. We just want to pray with you. We want you to make that decision to follow him. Maybe as we sing this, you need to speak to God and you need to just lament. Talk to him. Tell him. Be honest and open with him. He knows anyway. So as everyone's singing around you, you don't have to say it out loud. You can do it in your your heart. He can hear that. Just talk to him. And then maybe when you're ready, join in with the song and turn your trust back upon him. And maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to turn back from the idols you've been following as you declare none above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. But for now, let's stand together. However you come into this moment, let's sing now to our God who sits on the throne, who has given us a much better beginning.